Good morning, friends. If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab those. And today we will read together and we will talk about Psalm 27. We're taking a one-week break from the Gospel of John. I'll explain why here in a few minutes. Uh, If you were here in the prayer meeting on Wednesday night, this passage may sound a bit familiar. Um, My brother in Christ and a brother from another mother, we would say, Jason Espy, shared on Psalm 27. What's interesting is how the Lord both convicted us to share on a passage, and we did completely independently arrived at the same conclusion. Uh, Today, we'll read in Psalm 27. I'm using the New American Standard Bible version, and I'll begin in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though a war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me, and he will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from your servant. Do not turn your servant away in anger, for you have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired, let me say that again, I would have despaired unless I had believed in the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Amen. Uh, Today, before we really dive into our text, into the scripture, I just feel like the Lord is placing upon my heart just to pray for our time in the word. So bow with me. Heavenly Father, um, it is an honor and a privilege to be here today, to worship the God, the one that saw my need, my plight, and died for my sins, that I might have eternal aliveness with him. Lord, we seek in our life so many things. So many things distract us from what is truly the priority of our life. Lord, I just pray that we would push away the oceans of distractions and that we would see what the Christian life truly is all about. Lord, I thank you for those that are here. I thank you just for their faithfulness to you, the testimony of their lives. And I just pray that today that you are worshipped, that we can fellowship together, that we, as we unpack the scripture, that you would be glorified and honored. And we are uh, glad to be here. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we discuss priorities. I would say prioritizing the right thing and not the wrong things. 
Today I hope to answer the question, what is the top priority of the Christian life? But since we are not talking about the Gospel of John today, uh, how did this sermon all come about? If you have been here for any length of time, then you probably know that we have been spending about eight weeks in the Gospel of John, and today we were scheduled to be at the end of John chapter 2, and we will revisit that next week. So let's just answer the question, how did this sermon on Psalm 27 really all come about? So, if you could crawl inside of my head and inside of my life, something this week happened that has never happened before. I've been teaching God's Word for some 15 years, I've been preaching for some 6 years, and something just strange happened. On Monday morning at 5 a.m. this past week, by the way, I have no trouble in sleeping. I'm a very heavy sleeper. I like to wake up at noon if I possibly could, but I have two little munchkins that crawl up my legs at 6.30 in the morning. I wish they would just learn, take a hint. Please just sleep in. That's all I want you to do. But they never do. But at 5 a.m., I never get up this early. At 5 a.m., I wake up and I have a sermon in my head, a point, an outline, a passage, Now, it's 5 o'clock in the morning, and no, I do not like to wake up, so I'm sitting there wrestling, having my eyes closed, wanting to go back to sleep. But as I'm laying there in bed, I have my heart is just racing, my mind is just going at 5 a.m. Mine doesn't do that ever. And so I'm sitting there for 15 minutes just fighting it and fighting it and fighting it and fighting it. And then all of a sudden I just, okay, fine, Lord. I, I, got, I got the memo that you want me to write this down so I don't forget it. So then I roll over in my bed and I write down the passage, the point, and the outline. And as soon as I do, I'm able to fall fast asleep. But then something even weirder happened. I come in on Wednesday night and we're doing the prayer meeting. And my brother in Christ, Jason Espy, says that he wants to share on Psalm 27. Now, at the time, I just kind of smiled and just kind of nodded because I knew that the Lord had just placed two days before that I was supposed to preach on Psalm 27. They heard two days later, on Wednesday night, Jason is sharing on Psalm 27. So then I think to myself, do you think the Lord is trying to tell us something? Today, in Psalm 27, we see a picture of what it means to really walk with the Lord what it really means to have the focus on God and on nothing else. If I'm really transparent with you all, if you could see my physical body, I am very exhausted. Just tired. How many people in the room just feel really exhausted lately? Yeah. It feels like life is just one big giant game of tug of war. That we have 25 different things simultaneously pulling on us. I want you to place yourself in the middle of a game of tug of war, right? That you're in the middle and things are pulling on you. You got the image in your brain? What are the 25, 30, 40, 50 things that are pulling on you constantly right now that are dragging you away from really prioritizing the Lord? We are pulled on by our phones. Emails, computers, television, it's exhausting. On my phone right now, this is a, I shouldn't admit this, but I just looked earlier today that I have 27,845 emails in my email app, okay? That's pretty exhausting. We are distracted by our schedules. We are distracted by our bills, our to-do list, our foot-high grass in our front yard. 
We are pulled on by the world's by the world's expectations, keeping up with the Joneses. Do we have enough to retire? Have I achieved enough at work? We are pulled on by our children, our spouses, our loved ones. Now I love my kids, but they are very distracting. We are pulled on by our health. But in a world right now, we're pulled on by so much more. We're pulled on by the media giving mixed signals to us. We are pulled on by politicians. Political season is in full swing. We are pulled on by work. If you think about it, life is just a giant game of tug of war, and we are in the middle, pulled on by so many things in life, and this leaves us not only exhausted. Can I get an amen to that one? It not only leaves us exhausted, but it leaves us completely distracted of what really matters in life. There is one thing that we should prioritize above all else. And that one thing is what I want to share with you today, and that one thing is what I feel like that what we each need to hear as a church. If I can say it this way, let us use our priority to dictate our schedule not our schedule to dictate our priorities. And today we see the greatest priority of all, and we answer the question, what is the top priority of the Christian life? Now I'm going to pause right there for just a second. I'm going to repeat that question. It's up on the screen as well. I want you to answer it privately where you are. What is the priority of the Christian life? With this in mind, if you have your Bible, go again to Psalm 27. Now, if you... Psalm 27, personally speaking, is a very uh, personal psalm. I had a youth pastor about 15 years ago come into the youth group and tell me something very simple. He said that, Byron, you're not just meant to know about God. You're not just meant to have a bunch of information or show up to church and be a good person. But that as a Christian, that you are meant to know God intimately. You're supposed to know and know Him as priority. And one of the scriptures he used as evidence was this passage. So, personally speaking, Psalm 27 was the first time I ever really heard that I was meant to have a relationship with God. That God is not just some deistic understanding of God. That He's just a clockmaker up in the world, allowing the events of this universe to happen. That we as Christians are meant to know Him. Psalm 27 is also the first chapter I memorized in the Bible. It is the first sermon that I preached. And it contains my very first life verse. To kind of very quickly allow us to interpret the script, the Psalms correctly, let us first understand what the Psalms really are. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start wide and then work our way down to Psalm 27. What are the Psalms? That we, that we have 150 Psalms in the Bible, what are they? Essentially the Psalms, the book of Psalms are songs, right? The book of Psalms is a Hebrew collection of songs. And similar to our songs today, they are poems that are composed for singing. There are five different types of psalms. You have number one is a psalm of praise. An example of that would be Psalm 150. You have a psalm of lament, a psalm of sadness. It seems like almost every psalm is a psalm of sadness, it seems like, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. But an example of a psalm of lament is Psalm 51. We have a psalm of thanksgiving. A psalm of thankfulness. An example of that would be Psalm 100. We have a psalm, number four, of the Messiah. A song that predicts the Messiah that is to come. An example of that is Psalm 2. And then we have type number five is a psalm of doctrine, a psalm of teaching. 
a psalm or a song that teaches us, us something. Think about two really famous psalms. Psalm 119 teaches us about God's Word. Psalm 1 teaches about how to meditate on God's Word. Now, if I had to choose a label for Psalm 27, it's sometimes difficult, but I would say that Psalm 27 is a psalm of thanksgiving. That David is coming to the Lord with a pen and paper. Yes, I know he didn't have that back then, but he's, he's coming to the Lord with pen and paper, and he's composing 21 lines of poetry to show his thankfulness to God for his deliverance. And if you notice in your text now, as we narrow down to Psalm 27, Psalm 27 breaks down into three main chunks. Verses 1 through 3 describe who God is. Verses 4 through 10, 10 describe David's priority. And verses 11 through 14 describe the road that we and he should walk. But I want you to notice, with all this said, now as we've narrowed it down, before we really talk about the, the priority of the Christian life, I want you to notice what is pulling on David. I want you to notice what is distracting him from prioritizing God. Verse 2. When evildoers came upon me, to devour, now notice that word devour, we'll talk about it here in just a minute. To devour my flesh, my adversaries and enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host that camp against me, my heart will not fear. Though a war arrives against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Now skip down to verse 10. What else is pulling on him? What is distracting him from the Lord? Verse 10, for my father and my mother have abandoned me. But the Lord will take me up. Now, I just want to say something really quick. That in the 21st century, we think we have problems. Okay? Now, we do not have, at least hopefully, somebody outside of our home trying to eat us, quite literally. And hopefully our father and mother have still not abandoned us. Now, I want you to notice the first thing. It says in verse 2 that some people want to eat him. Now, I may be taking that a bit literally. I understand, I understand that. But the word devour here literally means to eat. It is used 814 times in the Old Testament. And it just has the appearance that you would take a knife and a fork and you would just take a bite of something. Now, what else is David facing? Not only are his enemies wanting to devour him, but also it says that his own father and mother have forsaken him. That word forsaken means to be abandoned or to leave. As I've said before, we think we have problems. His enemies want to rip him apart and his parents have completely abandoned him. Now that leaves David in a very dark valley. Now I do not know when or where or how David penned this psalm. But from the context of the scripture itself in Psalm 27, what I think is probably going on, he is probably running from Saul. Now who is Saul? Saul is the king of Israel. He is the most powerful man in his country. And Saul spends years and years and years chasing this man named David so that he could hang David as a picture on his wall. Which would make sense if he's running from Saul, because what I find interesting is that after David is anointed king, we hear of his father Jesse no more. 
that after 1 Samuel chapter 16, 16, that Jesse is no longer mentioned in the scripture as a person. David is mentioned the son of Jesse, but Jesse as a character is never mentioned, which makes a little bit more sense if you think about it. So David is running from Saul, and Jesse and his mother probably have forsaken David because, number one, that they do not want repercussions. And after all, if Donald Trump was chasing me around the world... I would imagine people close to me would think that I did something very bad or something wildly illegal. So David is sitting there. We do not know where he is, but most likely he is running from Saul for his life. He has no support system. And then he says something very profound in Psalm chapter 27, verses 1 through 4. What is the top priority of the Christian life? Notice verse 1. It says, The Lord is... My light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life, whom shall I dread? What is the top priority of the Christian life? It is the Lord. We should value our relationship with God above all else. But let's just be real that oftentimes our relationship with God is pushed aside, is pushed down our calendar to the very end of our day, and if we have time left over, and if I can hold my eyes open, then I will read my Bible, and then I will follow God. But if you notice here, David says that the Lord is his top priority. When we focus on the Lord, notice in verses 1 through 3, what does David really talk about here? Point number one, he really talks about who God really is. And who is God to David? That number one, that God is the Lord. If you notice that word Lord in verse 1, it is in all capital letters, which tells me something. I talk about this quite often, but that tells me that the Hebrew word behind Lord is the Hebrew word Yahweh. Now, I've spoken about this many times, so if you want to put a snooze button, it's okay. But this word never really gets old. I talk about it all the time, but it's always really refreshing. What the word Yahweh means, when you see all caps Lord, it really comes from the meaning of Exodus chapter 3. It comes from the story in the burning bush, that Moses sees a burning bush in the middle of a desert, and he comes before this burning bush, and it is the Lord speaking. And Moses says to God in verse 13 of chapter of Exodus chapter 3, Moses said to God, Suppose, burning bush, that I go to the Israelites and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. And then they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And then God said to Moses, I am who I am. The meaning of Yahweh is found in those five words, that I am who I am, that Yahweh, in other words this, that there is no way to really describe our God, that there is no comparison, that he has no creator, that he has no co-equal. Let me just put it in simple 21st century terms. Yahweh means that our God that we serve today is the God. That all the other gods of all of the other religions are lowercase g, gods. But the God that we worship, the God that we read about in the scripture itself is Yahweh. I am who I am. That he has absolutely no comparison. That he is the God of the universe and he is the holder and displayer of truth. 
So who is God to David? He is Yahweh. But let's go a little bit deeper into that culture 3,000 years ago. When David, as an Israelite, would use the term Yahweh. Many of us, okay, let's just be real. We just detach from this name Yahweh or Lord or God or Master. We've probably heard it so many times that it just kind of becomes boring. But when an Israelite uses the term Yahweh, what does he really mean? Not only does he think that, that our God, that his God is incomparable, but he also thinks in his mind that the God that he served is the God that freed his people from the nation of Egypt, that led them across the desert for 40 years, that gave them the promised land, and that gave to them the promises of the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant. So to an Israelite, the name Yahweh evokes not only this idea of theology, but also something from the heart. Who, is, who else is God to David? Number two, that God is his light. Now, if that's a metaphor, God is not literally his flashlight or his candle. What David means is a metaphor here. But what does David mean that the Lord is his light? In, in the Psalms... The word light is used 19 times, but it is used only 7 times in the Psalms by David. And that's called a word study. So what I did, in order to really understand any word in the Bible and how it's really understood or defined, you go and look it up in other contexts. So what I did is I looked up the other 7 uses that David has of his word light, and I found something really interesting. That David, when David says that God is his light, what he really means is that the power of God is his rejuvenation. His soul is reborn. His passion is reborn. That the Lord is the light of his spirit. If I could just say it this way also, that the Lord is his passion, his love, his energy, his guide, his rejuvenation. Who else is God to David? Number three is that it says in verse one, the Lord is my Yahweh, is my light, my rejuvenation, my excitement, my passion, and he is my salvation. When we think about the word salvation, many of us just kind of think about eternal life. As 21st century Christians, we think that salvation is solely mean to that the gospel. It's kind of what we think. But David really doesn't mean that here. What David means here by salvation is that the Lord is his rescuer. That the Lord is his deliverer, his protector from the enemies that encamp against him. And then notice the third thing, the fourth thing that God is. Who is God to David? Number four, that God is his defense of his life. That word defense there kind of is misleading in English. It means his strength, his hiding place, his refuge. What is David facing? That in the past, his enemies have encamped against him, have been so close that he could probably see his enemies, and his enemies want to eat him quite literally. In the midst of the past the pain and the present troubles of his parents forsaking him, he remembers who God is. I'm going to say it this way. Friends, we all have many, many things tugging on us. We all have many distractions, and let's just be frank as well. We all have scars in our souls, scars on our body. And in the midst of all of that, in the midst of the past, thinking about the past, and in the midst of present troubles, what should we do? We should focus on the Lord and on who He is. 
That is what I see in Psalm 27, verses 1 through 3. I tell young people, I, I am a young person, but I tell people who are younger than me, I tell them quite something often. I tell them this, that if you live long enough, you will experience tragedy. Can I get a name into that one? If you live long enough, you will experience tragedy. And what I hope happens as a consequence of this sermon, that not only would you arrange your life around the priority of the Lord, but that when you encounter something difficult, that you would remember who God is, that God is the rejuvenation of your soul, that He is your protector, that He is your refuge, that He is your strength, that God is faithful even when the world tells us He is not. What else does David focus on? So verses 1 through 3, he focuses on who God is. What I see is four things there. And then notice in verse 4, the most, one of the most beautiful verses in all of the scripture. He says, one thing I have asked from the Lord, notice all caps again, asked from Yahweh, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate on in His temple. What is the top priority of the Christian life in the midst of the tug-of-war of life? Focus on who God is and on being in His presence. As was mentioned on Wednesday night, verse 4 is a terrific life verse. If you're going to pick one, this is a pretty good one. But for the next five or ten minutes, I'm going to unpack this one verse, because it's just what I would say is really juicy, like a medium rare steak, okay? I like my steaks that way. But notice what he says. He says, one thing I have asked from the Lord, that David is so captivated by the love and the greatness and the majesty of God that he forsakes the prestige and the ego and the possessions and the power of the world as empty and valueless. Why do I say that? Let me ask you a question. If God came to you in a dream, or if God came to you at all, and in an audible voice, and if he does do that in an audible voice, come talk to me about it. We'll have some theological discussions, but moving on. Um, if God came to you and asked you a simple question, and or gave you one wish, what would you ask for? If God gave you one wish, what would you ask for? Some of us would probably ask for power, or for prestige, or for a better job, or for maybe a healthier marriage, or better, healthier children, not better children. I would say that. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Uh, maybe for more money or a bigger house? What does David ask for? One thing I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, I'm not sure if the Lord came to me and asked me what I would want if one thing. I'm not sure that I would say to be in the presence of the Lord all the days of my life. I'm not sure if many people on the face of the earth would say, Lord, all I want is to be in your presence all day long. 
If we don't say that, if we say that anything else, what does that tell us about the world? That we probably value the tangible items in the world more than we value our relationship to God. That if God gave us one wish, if we ask for nothing else, if we ask for anything else besides God Himself, that means we'll probably value the world more than our relationship with Him. What I find amazing is that David says, One thing I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell. That word dwell, it means to live or to abide. In the house of the Lord. Now why dwell in the house? I'm going to talk about this word, house of the Lord. The house of the Lord in this particular day and age, as we know as as people that live past Pentecost... That we as believers in Jesus Christ have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of us. But in this day and age, 3,000 years ago, they did not. Where did the presence of God reside? It resided in the temple or, and also in the tabernacle in this particular day and age. So where is the presence of God? It is found in the tabernacle, which is why Jesus, David says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. What is David really saying there? That every day that he wakes up, he wants to be where God is. That he wants to abide in the presence of God. And then notice what it says. It says, to, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And then it says, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Now go with me on this. The phrase, behold the beauty of the Lord, is kind of difficult to interpret because we really don't see God. We see his beautiful creation. We see the mountains and the creeks and the streams and the flowers of the field and the grass of the field. But we see his physical creation, but we do not see God. So what does David mean, the beauty of the Lord? I don't think David is talking about the physical beauty of God. If you look up the word beauty of the Lord, if you actually look up that phrase... In other contexts, what he means, what it usually refers to is, is the purity of God, the character of God. That David wants to be in the presence of the Lord and he wants to behold God's character, that God's essence, that God is pure, that he is loving, that he's holy. And then notice the last phrase, and he says, he, and he wants to meditate in his temple. One thing I've asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell, be with where God is, that I may behold the very character of God, and that I may meditate in his temple. Now, for the longest time, as I've shared, this was a life verse of mine for a long time, I always thought the word meditate there kind of gave the idea that when David would come into the tabernacle of God, that he would find a scroll of the Torah, and that he would meditate on the law. But really, it doesn't really mean that. The word meditate here is used only seven times in the Old Testament. And what it really means, the word meditate, means to investigate. What does David want to investigate? He wants to investigate or to discover more about God. David has a focus. He understands who God is. He wants to be in the very presence of God. In the midst of all of his distractions, in the midst of all of his circumstances, and that he wants to be in the presence of God, he wants to behold the very character of God, and he wants to discover more and more and more and more about him. Sometimes, 
our knowledge of God becomes like our wardrobe, frozen in time, right? <laughs> so my wife keeps telling me I keep dressing like a youth pastor on weekends. But as I see here, when David says to meditate in his temple, when I see that David wants to investigate the very character of God, to know him more and more and more, it tells me something very profound. That your relationship with God would never, should never get old. That there's always something new to discover about our great God. And which would make sense that we are finite beings trying to understand the infinite. Our relationship with God, our understanding of God, discovering who He is, should never be old. And that is what I see in David's life in Psalm 27, verse 4. So in the midst of the tug-of-war of life, let us focus on God, on who He is, on being with Him. And then notice verses 11 through 14. It says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desires of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I believed the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. In the midst of the tug of war of life, focus on point number three, walking the path. Teach me your way. Now, what do I, what do I, what is David really mean by teach me your way or walk the path. The word teach right here literally means to direct, almost to put my feet in the right position. Not only just show me, not only make the path, but actually cause my feet to walk the path. But why does David want this? Notice verse 12, do not deliver me over to the desires of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence... Friends, when faced with a difficult trial, when faced with an enemy, when faced with any kind of decision, when faced with a fork in the road, when faced with a decision that we are struggling to make, what should we at all times do, no matter how big or how small? We should say to the Lord, direct my steps, teach me your way. If I can just speak plainly in the 21st century, I'm just going to take this concept and kind of drag it over 2,000 years later. Uh, I've noticed something about Christians, and this I found this out about Christians while I lived in Dallas, but also here in Huntsville, that when we are faced with the decision, and if we are walking in the flesh and not by the Spirit, okay, can I say it that way? If we are walking in the flesh... If we are relying on our own abilities to understand and to synthesize facts and figures, if we are walking in the flesh, I've noticed that people, we as Christians, usually make decisions in four main ways. Okay, don't throw anything at me, okay? Number one is pragmatism. That instead of asking the Lord to teach us our path, show me the way in which I should go, and not only show me, but direct me, Instead of doing that, oftentimes when we're in the flesh, we then rely on pragmatism. And what I mean by that is weighing the pros and cons. This is not necessarily a bad thing, but we should always ask the Lord to show us His way first. When there's a problem or obstacle, some of us make decisions out of, number two, fear. Just look around you. In the world right now... (laughs) 
You can see that people are making lots of decisions out of fear, and I would say also out of anger. Can I get a name into that one? Our world right now is being ripped apart by fear and anger and malice and bitterness and rage. Friends, let us not be susceptible to be crippled by fear. But let us only fear God. Let me just say this. If we are fearing anything else, what does that mean about my faith? What does that mean about my view of God that God may not be on the throne? We make decisions, number one, out of pragmatism in the flesh, number two, out of fear, and then number three, we make it out of ignorance. I'm going to say it this way. We like to ignore problems. Now, um, I won't necessarily do a confession time right now, but how many of us have letters on the counter that we have ignored for months? Okay, and some of those are probably marked, you know, bill, okay? Okay, so what do we typically do in those circumstances? We like to ignore problems, right? Let's just be real. Like, in the flesh, we ignore decisions sometimes, hoping that they will magically disappear into the oblivion of nothing. And then number four, we make decisions out of force. Sometimes we are faced with the circumstance that if we're walking in the flesh, we like to just beat people into submission. I knew a pastor back in my past who, when he relied on the flesh, this was his tactic, okay? That if you ever disagreed with him, if he was walking the flesh, if you ever disagreed, or if you even teased him in the least, in all seriousness, he would say this to you, get behind me, Satan, okay? Okay, instead of just saying, you know, I'm just joking, man, okay? He would literally say to your face, get behind me, thou Satan, Friends, we all have different ways of handling things. We all have different ways of that we walk in the flesh. But friends, let's just, let's just do something different. Let's just see the world as He is. As it is. That God is truly in control. Let us focus on the Lord. That on who He is. On being with Him. And on walking the path He has for us to walk. So, fortunately for me, this week, on Monday morning at 5 a.m., not only did the Lord put a passage, a point, and an outline together, I still had to type it all out. Not only did the Lord put that in my brain, but he also deposited in my mind kind of the application that I want to share with you all today. Friends, right now, many of us are tired, many of us are distracted, many of us are worried, many of us are fearful. My hope from this sermon, from the consequence of Psalm 27, is that today, that we would seek the Lord. That we would not seek the decisions and what the world is always telling us to do differently or better, but that we as Christians would seek God. That we would not be crippled by fear, crippled by anything. And I'll say it this way. We as a church, that this, in this season of life, this is our time to shine into the world. I would pray that our unity would shine a bright light to the world. I, I would hope this. That the non-believers in the world that are looking for answers, that are looking to the internet, that are looking to the news media, for answers to life's difficult questions, that they would see the conduct of our life. And that they would say, they're seeking something different that I have. 
that there's something that they have that I want. I pray that they would look at our lives, they would look at our church as a place of sanctuary, as a place that contains the light of the world, and that they would come here, they would come into our houses, into our neighborhoods, and see the difference that we have. So this is what I'm going to ask everybody in the room to do. This is the application that the Lord really placed on my heart. On Thursday of this week, it's on the application part, on the back of your note sheet if you have one, I'm going to ask everyone to fast. I'm asking everyone on Thursday, breakfast and lunch, to fast to the Lord. Now, if you have health issues where you must eat, that's fine. I would encourage you then to fast from something that you love, such as your cell phone or a TV. And I want you to use that fasting time for two things. I want you to do, number one, I want you to pray. Friends, I think this is a time that we should pray for our nation. We should pray for the people of the world to turn to God, to turn away from evil. That we should pray for one another. We should pray for the unity of Calvary Bible Church. That we each should surrender to the Lord. But then also, while you fast, number two is what I want you to do is I want you to also prioritize. I want you to kind of do what David does in Psalm 27, verse 4. I want you to ask the question, one thing, Lord, are you the one thing that I would never give up for the sake of everything else? What I want you to do with number two is I want you to just look at the priorities of your life and I want you to just see if the Lord is on the throne. Very quickly, if you do not know Jesus Christ, whether you believe it or not, whether you want to know it or not, whether you want to admit it or not, that He is your Savior. And that you and I make mistakes, we lie, cheat, and steal. And because of that, we have eternal separation from God. And that Jesus Christ, out of His love for us, He died on the cross, and He gave you a gift of salvation by faith in Him. And as I mentioned last week, if you have never believed in Jesus Christ, I would invite you to do so. I would encourage you not to wait too long, or I would encourage you not to wait any longer to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to close with a passage on fasting. This comes out of Isaiah 58, verse 6. It says, This is the kind of fast day I am after, that I break the chains of injustice, Get rid of exploitation in the workplace. Free the oppressed and cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing the food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this. Fast in the right way. Do this, and the lights will turn on. And your lives will turn around at once. Your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then when you pray, God will answer. And you'll call out for help. And I'll say, here I am. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Uh, Thank you for the privilege just to take a one-week respite from John. Just to share something that I felt like you placed upon my heart. Lord, we have so many things going on in our lives. We have so many things to try. So many things pulling on us. Lord, I just pray that we would seek you as priority. That we would focus on who you are, being in your presence and walking the path that you have for us. 
Lord, I thank you for Calvary Bible Church. I thank you for this church. I thank you for those that are online that cannot be here physically. I pray for protection for all. Lord, continue to grant us wisdom. Continue to grant us unity. Continue to remind us that we are to seek you above everything else. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. That is my prayer for each of us. That is my prayer for us as a church. And Lord, I pray that as a nation, we return to You. Lord, I just uh, thank You for today. And uh, thank You for Your greatness and Your love and Your mercy. In Jesus' name, Amen.